Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. Today I speak to an individual who has suffered from racism, persecution and becoming a refugee, but transformed his life through peace, love, unity and respect, resulting in being awarded an MBE because of his passion for making people better tomorrow than today. Episode three, Toby Gorniak. What is the best thing you've done in the last few weeks? The last few weeks, we've launched a jumper because I had this belief that affirmations are really important, the vision boards are really important, and life is about sometimes seeing where you go in, um, no matter how long it takes. But lots of times when I was sharing this knowledge with other people, we always kept that in our bedrooms, on our little rooms, on the offices, where nobody else could see it, nobody else could call you out, nobody could ask you about it because nobody else knew, so it was a secret. So we came up with these bad boys, and it's a vision board jumper. Okay. So you get to write down all your hopes and dreams and wishes for anything that you want, and you have to wear it. And other people get to say, yo, well, that's a cool idea. Actually, why do you want that? And people get to communicate with you. You get to talk about it. And the more you talk about it, the more you're driven towards it, the more it's always on your mind, because everyone's going to come up and want to read your jumper. And the more they read it, they put out on the universe, you put it out because you're working hard towards it every day. And they just remind you to stay on the plan, to kind of hustle hard to get what you want. And I think this has been super dope beginning for me for this year because I actually digged out my old um, vision board and it was from 2016. And 80% on that is done. Wow. 80% of the stuff I wanted to achieve, I've achieved. And I even achieved more than that but it's been phenomenal to be able to look back and go, wow, it only took me that long to get here. What's next? Do you know what I mean? It's always, for me in my life, there's always just the beginning. What's next? Mate, that's incredible. That really is incredible. And it looks like you're going to have to start a new storyboard soon if you've already gone at 80%. Otherwise, you'll be sitting down with your slippers on, smoking, smoking and uh, drinking, drinking a beer. <laughs> for me, I, I think the future is great. But I'd like to start go back to your back to your past because you live in Plymouth and that is definitely not a Jana accent that you've got. It's not a Plymovian no. accent. <laughs> so where's the accent from? Where's where's origins for you? And so yeah, so I'm originally from Poland, but I'm a Roman Gypsy. Okay. So all my family travelled all around the world. Um, I've travelled to many countries, but Poland's where I was born, where I spent um, sort of in and out 14 years of my life. Um, and that's where the whole journey started. What does started. it mean to be a Romani gypsy? So to be a Romani gypsy to us is a culture, is a way of life. It's, it's, it's like who we are as people. Um, and, and to me, it's beautiful and it's strong and powerful um, as a history and heritage. That so that being a Romani gypsy, you travel around a lot, but you spent a lot of time yes. in and out of Poland. Is that correct? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. How was it growing yeah. up? Did you enjoy your childhood? Of course, I think, um, my, as my wife always explains is this, that if anyone ever digged in into my life, into the past, they would think it was a horror movie. Um, there, there's a lot of negativity in it. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of pain. But I think as a Roman New Gypsy, we always talk to see the better things in life, to focus on the positives. Because there's so many negatives, hold on to the positives, because there's not that many. So do hold on to those beautiful, cherished moments. Um, and I had to learn that from very young, that 
we have to look at the positives and hold on to them because there ain't going to be many of them in, in, in our lives. So enjoy them while you can. I mean, that's a fantastic outlook to have. Can you explain some of the negatives? If you're saying there's quite a lot, but... Yeah, I mean, take take the, the like um, I mentioned before, like um, take perhaps the first moment I realised I wasn't white. I was different to the society. I was um, an outsider to everything. And that, that was weird to know that at the age of six, that I was odd and I was different. So me and mum went to the market, uh, shopping, buying stuff, and then this guy would go, no, no, you gypsies, move, move, you're dirty, move away from my counter, like, I was like, flipping out, what's going on, do you know what I mean? What's going on? And it was like a bit crazy. Um, so that's the moment when I realised I was different. We were different. Because it didn't happen once that day. It happened several times. And I realised, wow, so we are different. We're so visibly different that anyone anywhere can point us out. And had that happened to you before, or had you just not noticed it? I haven't paid any attention to it. I was just a, probably just a little kid running around having fun. Not to that moment where it clicked in when I was six, when it all made sense. The whole thing, the, the feeling that, that feeling that you were not wanted in that space. Um, they wanted you to move away, to go away. Uh, but we had money, we wanted to buy food. Do you know what I mean? We were at this vegetable store and wanted to buy food. And they were like, no, no, you go away, move, 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 you gypsies, move, move away from our counter. And it was like, wow. Well, I mean, I've got I've got a nearly six year old, and you know, you do everything you can to protect them and and to and to give them the best life. Which I'm I've got no doubt in my mind that your family did for you. But how did that feel for you at six years old to to you said that realization that you're like you are different? It, it was like this this this. You knew there was always something, but you never kind of understood it because you were too young to get it. That day I got it. I understood that it was my skin color. It was my uh, dress code. It was my mom. It was my family. It was, it was us. We are the, 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 how can I say? The, the way he said it, it was like, you're evil. You need to move away, go away from me. You're gonna steal, you're gonna, you'll do something. Just, just go. Like we were a danger towards him. And, and I looked at that and it was me, a little child with my mom. What type of danger were we were to a big man? What did that do to did that do anything to your outlook on life? Oh, definitely. I made me made me really dislike that guy because of the way he spoke to me and the way he spoke to my mum. And was that an isolated incident or did was that a reoccurring? No, from 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 then on I was aware. I was conscious. I was um um aware. I was hearing it more, I was feeling it more. Um then moments like I remember going to the market, uh, one of my uncles came in, um to our house to, to visit my mom and all the kids were there, all the nephews were there and he gave everyone a fiver. So we all got five bucks, so we were buzzing now. So we're like, yo, let's hit the market. They've got loads of cheap toys. Let's go down and buy some toys. And as we were paying for these toys, this guy picked up my money and my cousin's money and checked it and made sure it was real. Um, it was the whole behavior and his manner, the way he treated us, that again made me realize, wow, I'm just buying a toy. I just want, I'm just a kid and I'm excited and I just want a toy. And you're going to treat me that way just because I want a toy. So why, why was that happening? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely later I understood why this whole thing was happening. And I think it was probably around eight and nine 
well, really understood how the world perceived us. And they seen gypsies as criminals, as thieves, as, as villains, as um, danger. So whenever we entered anywhere, we were visibly different because of our skin, because of our hair, because of our dress code. Um, we stood out. And because of that, we were such an easy target for everybody. And yes, there's good and yes, there's bad people, but that's, that's in every culture. But for some reason, even to today, people are allowed to use a certain language when it comes to Roma, gypsies and travelers. Not any other culture, not any other religion, because it was seen or deemed to be racist. But with our culture, people still allowed to say whatever they want when it comes to the gypsy culture of people. How bad did it get? Oh, really bad. I mean, we're talking about violence. We're talking about burning people's houses down. We're talking about murder. We're talking about rape. We're talking about really, whoa, whoa, really whoa, bad. Whoa, whoa. Rewind, rewind. So incidents that you were involved with as a child were witnessing arson. Yeah. Witnessing yeah. extreme violence, rape, yeah. murder yeah. against yeah. Roman gypsies. Against Roma, yeah. Is there any um, particular situation that stays with you at the moment, like to today? It's, it's too many of them, mate. Too many. I remember, like, um, you know, we, we lost one of our uncles, and all he did, went out to a club, had a great night, a couple guys jumped in. He wasn't there the next morning. Because he was a Roman gypsy. Because he was a Roman gypsy. They had CCTV of it, of everything. Um, the guys got caught, um, but they've got, I think, they were given like a minimum sentence uh, because everyone lied and got together, said that um, he was violent and everything. But on the CCTV, none of that was shown. You lived in Poland for like 14, in and out. 14 yeah. years. 14 years Why yeah. didn't you continue living in Poland? Because what happened was when I hit 14, I and all my cousins and all the young boys started becoming men. And we were kind of getting together to say, you know what, enough is enough. We're going to stand up for our own people now. And my mother realized that it was getting more dangerous. It was getting more violent. And she knew that very soon one of us will be dead or one of us will kill someone and go to prison for the rest of our lives. And so what happens? So then, so in that moment, there, there was a big um, kind of big fight happening between us and the locals, and it was on and off. So one incident, then somebody else paid back, then somebody else paid back, then somebody else, paid, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And my mother realized that it's getting really dangerous for all so of what us. What sort of incidents are we talking about? So I know one of the uh, incidents was me going to the shop and being jumped by three skinheads. So a little kid, around 11 years old, going to the local shop, picking up some shopping for your mum, and then three men beat the hell out of you and you end up in hospital. And then there was a retaliation to that, a retaliation. And there was a retaliation that from a Roma Gypsy people. And then that came back again. So there was on and on, on and on. Going. And how did that make you feel like when you was lying in that hospital bed? It's, it's more anger that I couldn't do nothing about it because I was too little, because I was too small. So it's more frustration that I couldn't defend myself. It, it was more my, how can I say, my pride as a man, not be able to, to, to stand my ground against free men. You know, we take for granted in the UK about our education. 
Um, and I think that when all said and done, in compa comparables across the world, our education is is pretty good. Everyone's entitled to an education. Everyone gets an education, providing that they attend school, obviously, but available. How was how was your education, your your in, that environment for you? It, that environment for me wasn't very good. Um, from a very young age, again, because of my family, because of my culture, young men are taught business, are taught to work for themselves, to earn money for the family, to feed the family, to help the family. So we have, from a very young age, got big responsibilities. And so, and that, that's from a that's from a cultural education point. Yes, cultural education um, from my uncles and my, and my mom and my aunties. We had this instilled in us this pride, this honour for your family. Uh, that you go out, you work, you hustle really hard, and, and then you give all the money to your family so your family can have a good life. And every one of your brothers and sisters has got this responsibility for each other. So then when I went to school, I was really good at maths. My reading and writing wasn't very good. Everything else wasn't very good. But my maths was on point because from a very young age, we were taught money. We were taught that, you know, if you buy this, you sell this, what's your profit? Do you know what I mean? We were taught from a young age how to give out change, make sure you don't get ripped off. Make sure you don't lose money and all that kind of stuff. So from a very young age, maths was my thing. I love maths. But then when I went to the school, um, I had a problem with maths because um, the teacher didn't like me. And every time I will succeed and do the maths questions first, I got hit for that. Uh, my book would have been So you ripped. got hit for that? Hit for that. So if I, say imagine we were given a test in the class, um, usually around 20 or 30 questions. Um, I'll be finished, hand up. I'm done. Uh, teacher walks up, looks at my book, ripped the book, smacked me in the back of the head um, and says, you've done it wrong. Well, I know my answers were correct. Because to me, I was dealing with money. I wasn't dealing with numbers. I was dealing with money. And you, you believe that's because you, uh, you're culturally different? Because I'm a wrong gypsy. Yeah. I was the only gypsy kid in, in, in the class. So me and my brother uh, were the two only gypsy kids in the whole school. So school was tough. Very tough. So your mum, was it your mum that decided to leave? Like where, how, yeah. how, did, how did that come about? It, it was weird, man. We were um, just in the park playing football like we always do, running around, having a good time. We come home and mum says, pack your bags. So what do you mean pack my bags? She said, just put some clothes in there, some trousers, tops, put your shoes on, we're leaving now. And where did you go? We jumped in a cab, straight to an airport, straight to England. And where were you in your head at that time? I was, I was lost. Imagine, 14 years old and just had a great time with my mates. Do you know what I mean? Family, cousins, chilling in the park, having a good time. Come home thinking, oh, yeah, I'll go home, have something to eat and chill. And it's like, no, nah, pack your stuff. We're leaving tonight. And all of that was because of the racism that was growing in our city. The, 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 the skinheads groups were getting larger and bigger and getting more violent. You didn't get an opportunity to say goodbye to anyone? No, that night I was gone. I was gone, dude. It was like, come home from the park. Imagine all sweating and everything because I've been running around, having a good time. Grab whatever you can. We're leaving now. And how do you think your mum felt about that? I knew there was something going on for her to do it. Do you know what I mean? I knew we had a lot of troubles. There was lots of stuff happening in our city. So we knew that we were aware there's stuff going on in our city, do you know what I mean, when it comes to the racism and stuff that was growing. But then for her just to say, we're leaving, 
when your mother says we're leaving, you don't ask the questions where and why. You pack your bags and you do as you're told. When you was on the plane, what was your thought processes? I mean, that's a fairly quick transition from this is your life to now the future's unknown. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I remember being being on that plane just confused, lost, a bit sad that I couldn't say goodbye to nobody, um, knowing that I might never return. I'll never see these people again. And I'm going to an unknown place. So then you kind of put your guard up and you get ready for the next, we could say, fight in a way of life because you don't know what's coming next. What did that particular period in your life teach you? I think in that moment in time, it was tough because there was many lessons I've learned in that moment in time of later, I think, realizing more about it that what my mom did for us. Do you know what I mean? The power, the strength, the courage she had, the brave, the bravery she, she showed in that moment in time to, to just get us out. Do you know what I mean? That, that took a lot. And especially, you know, we weren't rich. We were a poor family. Do you know what I mean? For her to get all of that together and just think, no, we're leaving right now, it's, it's massive. But I think for me, the, the main lesson from that was that you do anything for your kids. And that's what my mom showed in that moment in time. So you travel to England, essentially yeah. to escape persecution, racism. Yeah. And where did you arrive in England? So I arrived at Heathrow, um, can't speak English. Uh, my mum is trying to explain to them what happened while we're here. So then you've got, they're not police officers, but they're like police officers there. They've got the uniforms and stuff and... So we spoke to one of the guys there, and then he put us through to the refugee um, place where they deal with refugees and stuff. So we went in there. We were kept in there for a good four to five hours. Uh, then from there, <coughs> we were transported to this um, camp. So imagine, like, there's like a base with loads of houses, massive fences, like a wire fences all around. We were dropped off there, and then we were put in this little room with bunk beds, and, and our journey started. How was there. that arriving in England? Have you been to the UK before? Never. How did you no. feel when you, when you arrived and, and you said you were transported? Like, what was the process like? Yeah, and that moment in time, you see, in that moment in time, you don't think, you don't feel, you just do. Um, and you just do what's necessary. So mum said, get in the car, we're going, you go. Mum says, grab the stuff, we're going, we go. So did you have an older, was your brother older or younger? No, my, my younger brother was with me. So I've, had, I've got um, two younger brothers and a younger sister that came with oh, us. Okay, wow. So how old were they when they, they came across as well? So, so my, young, uh, my brother was young, a year younger than yeah. me. So if I was 14, he was 13. Then we had um, my youngest brother. It was, um, then we've got Jess and she's... Three years younger than, no, two years younger than, than Adrian. So she was probably 11 then. And then you had Alan, which was the youngest, and I think he was only like five. Got you. Do you not have TVs in, um, in where, where you live then? Yeah, we do. A lot, a lot of kids, <laughs> But huh? in a gypsy culture. <laughs> yeah, but in a gypsy culture, everyone has yeah, a big yeah, family because yeah. it's a family-orientated culture. Like, even in my house, I've got six wow. kids. Well, have you, have you got a TV? <laughs> I've got a big TV, man. 74 inch, bro. <laughs> got Peppa Pig on it or something like that. Yes, man. Yes. And so what, what, about, what about Dad? 
My dad wasn't around from day one. Um, yeah, he wasn't a very good man, so he was never around us. Um, so my mum brought us all up. So you go to this camp, and then what happened from there? So from there, some we met other families who were there, and some of them were like, we've here, been here three months, we've been here six months. Um, the food was awful. The, the, there was nothing to do. There were so many people there. And the food that we were eating was pff, terrible, man. We had, like, stomach bugs and aches and everything you could imagine uh, from the food. And my mom would go and complain every day. She would go argue with them every single day. And we were out of there within two to three weeks. Probably because they didn't want to complain anymore. <laughs> Probably because my mom was just a tough cookie. I mean, she wouldn't give up. Where the other families were there like three to six months. I mean, it's really interesting because that particular situation is fairly current now. I mean, a lot of your life is still current, you know, what you've experienced. Yes. If not, you know, most of it. It's been quite quite advertised recently about um, immigrants. I mean, there's a, there is a difference yeah. between economical migration and refugees, absolutely. Yeah. But we hear on the news about refugee areas that are underfunded and are not very good conditions to live in, and it's more of a process. They don't feel like people. And, you know, and, and the counter, some people will counter that to say, well, you know, why should we? They shouldn't shouldn't come here and all that. You know that sort of that that rhetoric. How would you respond to comments like that? I, I don't know. I understand the process. I think the process is needed because yes, you can't let everybody in. I understand. Um, they, they, I'm like like with us. They asked the circumstances. They researched us. They wrote, they they rang the Polish uh, embassy. They rang our city. They they done all the research. Do you know what I mean? And they do do it, make it really difficult. So the people that get through, they get through because they have a bloody good reason to be here. People that do get through are not the people that just like, oh, they just came through and came straight through. They had to go through a really hard process. And I think because people are not aware of the hard process people got to go through, they don't, they don't understand that these guys went through hell to be able to be here now. Do you think that the education of that situation needs to be improved for wider understanding and which would maybe help acceptance? 100%, because if people understood why people come, what happens to them, what process they got to come through just to be able to be allowed in the country. Because people think they're just walking in. Nobody can just walk in. Are you mad? If they did, we'll have half of the world here. Do you know what I mean? Um, everyone has to go through this really tough process. And then the biggest problem we have is the myths of who pays for what for the refugees, how much money they get, all that rubbish that's being always foretold that they get loads of money, they've got mobile phones, they've got cars, they, they're getting benefits, they're doing this. No refugees entitled to any benefits. They do not get any government benefits that a normal British person gets. There's a separate pot of funding that is just for refugees, and it just pays for food. All the bills, all the houses paid by the main government, they control all of that. And you just lived in the house, you can't do nothing, and you gotta wait for your courts, you gotta wait for your meetings, for everything, and you gotta do as you're told. And if you break any rules, you instantly deport. So this is after. So once all those checks and controls are, have been completed, and then so after your three weeks, you're then allowed to move out into and into yes. housing. Yeah, but they put you into the house. They put you into what city, what 
what area you're going to be put in. Um, then you get the social workers that work with you and keep an eye on you, make sure you understand how to navigate this, this new way of life. At the time, where would you have preferred to be? I don't know. I, I couldn't give you the answer because everywhere to me was the same. It was um, places that were run by white people. Um, let me, let me rephrase minute. that question. Where would you have preferred to be, UK or back home? Oh, of course, back home. Of course, back home, because I knew I, I know the place, do you know what I mean? Even if it was how horrible it was, it's still, I knew it, so there was some safety, still I felt, home. because I had, yes. So you would have preferred to go back to Poland with the threat and the risk of escalating violence than to, at the time, than to explore a new future and an unknown. 100% wow. as a kid, you don't know nothing different. Do you know what I mean? So you always just want to stay home because your home is your home. And so, I mean, your, your mum, you know, when you said that she's a strong lady, for her to be able to do that because that's been her home for longer, you know, for yes. her to be able to be able to make that decision, like you say, it ha must have to have been a really strong reason why to protect the four of you, really. Yes. Where do they place you? So first we were in this place i don't know where that was but somewhere not far away from the airport so there must be some kind of holding area uh, so close this, to the sorry, airport because we didn't travel post, far. so you've done your check the checks now okay so so once we once we were allowed in the country and we were we were given sort of refugee status um to be decided if we're allowed to stay or not kind of that goes to the courts after so in that limbo time um we were put into this so we were moved from london to somewhere and i don't know the place in like a B&B, we stayed there for two nights and then we went, moved to Plymouth. That, that, and that's where you've been since? That's it, that's where we've been since, yeah. When they moved you to Plymouth, you, they just drop you off at the house and say, see you later, what, 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 how, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so, so we, we, we turned up at the train station, uh, we had a couple of people pick us up, um, a couple of cars, and then we went up to the house, uh, they showed us everything in the house, then they took us to the corner shop, uh, and bought us cereal and bread and, and milk, just the basics. And then we went back to the house, and that's where our journey started. So you have just, <laughs> so you have just, let me get this straight, you've just spent 14 years of your life being persecuted, racially abused, culturally transient in, in the way that you live, um, so no fixed abode. Yeah. Your mum has made you flee your home because of violence and threat to life. You've arrived yep. in the UK, you now have a fixed abode, which is not conducive with your cultural way of life at all. And what now, you just get on with it? Now it's just you wait. Wait, wait for So what? for the next, and then nobody tells you, nobody explains to you how long things take, whatever, because there isn't those people there for that. You're just being told you just got to wait. Now, looking back, what were you waiting for? So we're waiting for a solicitor. We're waiting for um, the, the social workers to come and work with us and explain to us how everything works, to go into education, to go to school, to slowly start living in this country and getting used to the culture and the way of life here. And how did you find that adaption? Oh, really difficult really difficult uh, because culturally uh, back home I was a man uh, and here I was a child uh, so that didn't really sit well with me 
because you know I was I was given freedom to be a man, and now I'm told I'm just a 14 year old kid and I got to do as I'm told. And I'm like, I had my freedoms back home. Do you know I was a man? Do you know I mean I was working? I was earning money for my family. And then here I'm not allowed to do nothing. I got to be a child. I got to go back to school. Yeah, and that was a big cultural struggle. What was school like in the UK for you? Uh, my first my first day was funny uh, because what happened was that um, the day before I said to my brother, let me cut your hair so make sure we look fresh when we go to school. Um, and then I was cutting my hair. Uh, but the funny thing that happened was I'm cutting my hair by the mirror, so I've got the clippers and I'm just trimming it a little bit, just trimming it. And then my mom said something, I did that and the plastic thing falling off and I didn't realise and I went, real. And I had like a little bull patch right, right there. I was like, no, right on my first day. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it was really embarrassing. But my mama, my mom came up with this idea of plaiting my hair and got loads of little plaits everywhere. So I had like a bob, but just with plaits. Um, so that was a bit, a bit embarrassing. Do you know what I mean? So then you had to go to school. And then we had to wear this uniform um, to go to school. Um, but again, because of our upbringing, my uniform was pristine. Do you know what I mean? My trousers were ironed, everything was crisp, everything was perfect. So then we went to school, didn't speak no English. Uh, and then my first day in school wasn't very good because, um, you know, you walk in a classroom, everyone talks about you and you don't understand what they're saying. You just, you just walk into a room and everyone goes, how did you know? How did you know? And you can't understand anything that people are saying, do you know what I mean? So that was a bit, bit difficult. Then we had a supply teacher for English and she's walking around asking everyone for homework and I can see everyone's getting the books out. Um, I haven't got my books yet. I haven't got nothing yet because I'm just my first day. And she walks up to me and she said, where's your homework? So I'm looking at her thinking, does she want to know my name? Where's your homework? I'm like, oh, I'm thinking, okay, she maybe don't want to know my name. And then she shouts, where's your homework? Give me your homework. Uh, and then one of the girls next to me said, Miss, he doesn't speak English, it's his first day. And then she said, oh, no, 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 you're lying. He, he's been here before, he's on the register. And the girl went, no, no, Miss, it's his first day, he doesn't speak English. And then she left me um, to sit there and observe the whole class for the next hours. That's a tough transition. How did you find your welcome there? I mean, you, you said that, is there any, any consistent traits from when you were back in Poland in the UK or was it different? Yeah, I, th I think, yeah, I think the difference here was in England that I wasn't a gypsy. Um, here I could have been anybody from anywhere uh, because they're used to people from all different refugees from different places. Um, so I wasn't a gypsy, I was just a refugee. And how did that sit with you? Was that so better, we, worse? Like it, it was different. It's something I haven't experienced before, do you know what I mean? So yes, there was a stigma to being a refugee. Um, but it wasn't as bad as being a gypsy. I would have preferred someone to say, hi, what's your name? I would have preferred that. But what did um, that feel like, being a refugee, shall we say? What, what, how, did that, how did that feel for you? It, it was weird because you were a book of questions. Everyone just wanted to ask you questions. There were just millions and millions of questions. Uh, and because I couldn't speak the language, I didn't understand the questions, so I'd be just like, on a daily basis, do you know what I mean? People say, you say stuff and I'll be like, I don't get you, do you know what I mean? You obviously learned to speak English and those questions would have remained yeah. because they still would have wanted to know the yeah, answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were they yeah. questions because they were genuinely inquisitive, like I am, because I think it's it's so far removed from what I'm used to. I genuinely want to know. 
was there more is there any malicious intent in those questions i mean how what, what how did you what was that like there was yeah there was a bit of both i mean some people were really interested on because you, you look different you are different you know what i mean some people were interested in what where'd you come from uh, what's your language what's your culture like what's your food like people were really interested but there were some things where people just wanted to use that against you so i remember saying one thing like in our culture we get married really young and lots of times it would be an arranged marriage between the families and stuff like that. Um, and then I remember saying that once and girls used it against me. Do you know what I mean? They'll be like, oh, yeah, don't hang out with him because, you know, you might have to marry him. And they, they, got, they mistreat the women because the women got to do as they're told. And, and I was like, wow. And it was just me saying that we get married young. Well, it doesn't sound like your mom does as she's told. She sounds like a strong woman. So No. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, and not only that, in our culture, there's so many things that have changed now. I mean, there's so many differences in it now. Yes, back in the day, it was really old-fashioned and old-school. I get it. But it has changed so much now in our culture on how people do so things. So staying on, on, the, on that trend, is it, is it comparable or is it different? Like, how, how, how is your life in terms of a cultural difference now? So... I would, I would, you see, the thing is, there's this, there's one thing I'm trying to do for our Roma gypsies and our culture is to educate the older generation that we have to move with the times. So I would call myself more like the uh, never Roma, which means new gypsies, um, which the, my principle was like, I took the best of the Western culture and I took the best of the Romani culture and I put it together. So in our family, we call it the Gorniaks, which is like how we live life. So my daughters have freedom, my daughters have everything they want, but they have the foundation of respect, of love and family and honor, and all those things that are really important. So not only we give them the freedom, but we give them good foundations so they can make the right choices in life. But that sounds to me like what I'm trying to achieve with my kids. You know, that's like a, that, exactly what you've just said there. And I'm like, well, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Like, that doesn't sound too far removed at all from what I'm trying to achieve. And so how's that working out at the moment? So at the minute for me and my family is working out amazingly. So we've got like the five principles we live by and those principles, I, I work with them. They're, they're, they're a foundation of my business, foundation of anything and everything that I do. And they're based on respect, peace, love, unity, and fun. So that's the five core elements. And I bombarded that with my kids from the day they were born. I wanted them to have that as an ethos, as an ethic, as a as a itch. Every time you do you think about doing something naughty, these these five things are gonna pop up in your head. Uh, and they're gonna make you think and they're gonna make you consider the situation, the time and the space that you're in to make better choices in life. That's nice, man. That's really nice. I wanna I wanna move on to uh, something slightly different um, in terms of dance. Or explain explain where dance comes into your life and and how that sort of manifested itself. Yeah. So dance is something that my family did. My family was really known for because of my mum. So you've got musicians, you've got dancers, you've got businessmen, you've got makers, you've got so many different culturally, um, different types of gypsies that do stuff because we all work for ourselves. So you all are taught a trade or a business or a concept or playing music in a band and then touring and traveling and that's the way you pay for your family and for your life. Or you sell carpets like I did, or you um, 
make things like pots and pans and things. And it, it is just a way of being creative and a way of working for yourself. So dance was something that was in our family and in our culture. So tradition in our culture, men and women dance. And it's always a party vibe, a party environment. And I was brought up with it. So to me, dance was just a way of life. And, what, and so you always dance from an early age? From a very young age, that's all I did was dancing, messing around, having a good time with the family, family parties and events and stuff. So when did dance become more than just messing around at family parties? So when I went to school at Lipson Community College, I've met one guy there, his name was Sammy, and he spoke German, but he was a refugee as well. Um, and I speak five languages, and German is one of them. So me and him just got started talking, and he was like, oh, yeah, we do breaking at lunchtimes. I was like, oh, cool, I'll check it out, because back in Poland, we used to do breakdancing on cardboard boxes, and we used to take, like, a car battery, plug into a stereo, and then play beats and stuff, because I used to watch the German crew called Flying Steps. And I would sometimes sit all day just to catch that one music video where they did some crazy stunts. Um, and that's the only way I could ever see anything when it come, came to breaking. Um, and then I would train um, and I'll make up my own stuff. And then I came to England and met other people that were doing it. Um, and so one day I went, walked into the dance studio and watched, watched the boys. And I was like, you know, we know, we know a lot more than this. Come on, let's, let's show them. So me and my brother started sharing our knowledge with them. And then one of the guys came up and he said, should we make a team? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then I was in that team for several years. Um, and after that, I decided to leave the team and start. So when, when you say team, what, what do you mean? Like, like a dance team. Like a dance so team. when you say, that, when you say um, a team, what do you mean by that? So we decided to make a dance crew. And we decided to train together, do performances, shows, workshops. Um, and it was really, really good fun. Okay, so just, just stop. Like, because you were interested in dance, you just got together and did a bit of choreography yourselves and tried out new things and was being creative and innovative through dance. That's it. Because of hip-hop, breaking is part of the culture. And in the culture, it's about people, it's about unity, it's about togetherness, and that's part of the culture. So that's how you always get a crew together. And then you do battles, you do shows and performances and stuff like that. What does it mean to be part of that particular culture? Oh, it's phenomenal. That really, I would say, saved my life more than once. Being part of hip-hop made me cool. Uh, it didn't make me a refugee no more. Uh, um, I was a cool kid. I was a kid that could do windmills, flips and tricks. I was suddenly the cool kid. Made me kind of fit in or, or people wouldn't pick on me. People were like, oh, yeah, do a cool move. Where before they would have just came and picked on me or, or there would have been a fight or something. It came more like, yeah, Toby, do that move. Do that cool move you do. It became a, a cool factor. Who knew that when you were dancing at your, your family's parties that that would actually be a bit of a saving grace because of the life that you were going to end up having to lead? Is there any more in, in that comment that you made about it saved your life? Yeah, many times, like, um, you'd be invited to go places or hang around with the boys, and I didn't because I was training in my room, in my house. So in the house we lived, we had one, like, a spare room in there. Uh, was carpeted and I'll train in there every day all day I mean literally I'll be the whole room would be sweating not just me but the room would be sweating because I just wouldn't stop training um I fall in love with that and kind of gave me purpose um so I would just train every single day and some of the guys I knew that would go out go to parties go to events and there would be a fight or trouble or something 
and I never went, so I never got into trouble because of that. That kept me away from everybody else. It kept me busy and focused. If you were having a particularly hard time, would you turn to dance? See, to me, like, um, I know people have hard days. I don't have a hard day because I dance every day. I listen to music every day. I do my affirmation, meditation every day to make sure there isn't a bad day. Do you know what I mean? There's always a good day. There's always a way to look up and, and look forward towards life. It's interesting. I was speaking to someone just the other day about exactly that. And you're saying every day. And it's about consistency of doing the right things consistently to be able to make that habit yeah, to, to prevent bad days from happening. I mean, it's fair to say that, definitely. you know, your bad day, a barometer of your bad day is probably slightly different to a lot of other people's barometer of bad days from what you've experienced. Yeah. Um, and and I, think, I think to me, it's more of a moment than a day. Do you know what I mean? So things happen, like terrible things happen. Like I work with so many people and something really bad can happen to them and and they ring me up crying and I'm like, oh, let me know, listen, let me get on that. Da, da, da. And it's just a moment uh, because I do understand that in life, we, they're just moments. Nothing lasts forever. It, it is just a moment and it's about treating as a moment. How have you managed to have such a positive mindset and a determined motivational outlook on life considering what we've already discussed as your formative years. I don't know. I haven't got an answer for that. All I can say was the experience. As people say, um, some things make you and some things break you. And I was lucky enough that this made me to the person I am today. Um, it made me strong. It made me hungry. It made me maybe, maybe wanted to escape that life. Do you know what I mean? Not to be in that situation, that position no more. So maybe that's why I worked harder than everybody else. That's why I was hungrier than everybody else. Um, and I include my entire family. Do you know what I mean? I was always hungrier for success, hungrier to be something in my life, not to live this type of poor life, not to live this struggle, this, this constant hatred towards you from other people. Maybe that's why I worked so much harder than everybody else and I wanted success and I wanted love and I wanted a nicer life. Do you know what I mean? Like one of the things I remember as a child watching a TV, watching a film and thinking, I wanted a life like this. I want the mum and dad, the two kids, the dog, the nice house. But one of the things that always propped up to my head was, I wish I was white. Really? Because I knew a lot of white people who had that life. Wow. And do you think that you need to be white to have that life? I think now it's, it's different. I think now there's more possibilities. And I think now where we know more, so we will strive more. We know that there's more opportunities for us. But I think back in the day, the knowledge and the stories were always told. And in films and in adverts and anything you ever saw, white people always had that life. You never seen many black or gypsy or Asian families that had that life. But there was a lot of white people who did. So my imagination when I was a kid, I always thought, God, why did you make me this way? Why can't I just be white enough for white family? and could have had just a nice life. What do you think about that now? Oh, yeah, I'm quite, I can say not glad, but blessed that the life I had, it gave me many lessons. It taught me many great things and it made me the man I am today. Without those lessons, without the things I went through in my life, 
I want to be able to reach the people I'm reaching today and be able to help the people I'm, I'm helping today. Do you think that we are where we need, as a, as a country, where we need to be in diversity representation? Or do you think there's still some way to go? Um, what's, your view, what's your views on that? I think, I think definitely there's many, many big steps that many people still need to do and to make to make sure we feel more as human beings than races and colours and religions. Can you give any examples? I think the problem we Can you give any examples of those? Yeah, I mean, the, the main problem for the minute, we, we have, people don't see me, people see my skin colour first. I saw your leopard, I saw your leopard I, top first, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, Jimmy, if I met you, the first thing I would say, oh, hi, what's your name? But when people meet me, they say, hi, where are you from? And that's the difference. I would have loved, I love when people walk up to me and say, hi, what's your name? I, I love those type of people, I just love them because I'm saying thank you for seeing me as a human being first. And then ask me whatever you want, brilliant. But you know my name at least, you ask me my name. I'm not just a thing, well, where's that thing from? Do you know I mean? I'm a human being. I mean, that's such a simple thing to do. It is, but culturally we were taught and trained that a conversation opener is to walk up and ask someone where they're from. But when a white person meets a white person, they don't, they don't ask them where they're from. When they speak English, they don't ask them where they're from. But when people meet me, the first thing they would say, so oh, well, where are you from then? Before my name, before hello. I mean, that's probably got something to do with the fact that you do not have a Plumovian accent whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. But I think it comes into the culture that I think we need to change but not only here, in the world. One of the main important things is people don't see people as people. They see them as what's being portrayed on, on the media, on TV and films. And remember, we're dealing with hundreds of years of TV and everything that's been ever portrayed. Um, and if you go into the, like, you know, I think it was the 50s, 40s, and whenever the TV started, um, the images that have been shown and we've been trained to watch and see and to understand and to interpret. To those films and those generations of people, we still believe in that it is right. And it's about now changing the narrative, changing the whole direction and teaching our next generation that people are people. And, and I got to say in this generation, like my kids um, and their friends, they do not see as much race as color and everything else. They just see a friend, they see um, a mate that, that they go to school with. And then later, the older they get, they learn more about the culture, they're more involved with other groups and other cultures. And I know that has to do with more people living around more different places and mix and actually knowing somebody. That makes a big difference when people actually get to meet somebody and say, actually, I know Toby and I know Toby's a gypsy, but that's just Toby. So I met Toby and he's a gypsy. I can't say now every gypsy is like Toby. And what makes Toby is the fact that you are a gypsy as well as other as well yes. as other things. You're a dancer, you're a father, you're a husband, you know, you're that that's what makes you who you are. And and I suppose it's it's people that take that and isolate that to assume that's who you are rather than it's part of who you yeah. are. Definitely. And I think in the world people are trying. Um there is good way to try and there's a bad way to try, but I think nothing will come out so, if we don't so, try. So give me some examples of a good way and a bad way. Yeah, so that's my point of view on it. So my point of view on a good way is um, saying work, 
um, I'm employing you because you're good at what you do. Not looking at anything else. But at the minute, with the government and stuff, you've got these requirements. You have to have so much balance in your staff. You have to have so many female, male, mixed cultures, religions, and everything else. Um, and I think, yeah, that's cool. But sometimes it just doesn't work. And do you think that that viewpoint is based off the fact that with the experiences that you've had, you've had to earn everything that you've got? And do you think that's, is that something yeah. that maybe has shaped your opinion on, on the way? Oh, definitely, definitely. Like I said, I know sometimes it works because sometimes it makes, say, imagine if you're the employer uh, and you have a certain attitude towards um, males, females, religions, cultures, then you don't employ these certain people because you've got certain processes that you believe. But because of the laws, you have to employ these people. You have to open the floor for them, which is, yes, that is brilliant. But at the same time, you should be employed because you're good and you're skilled at what you do. Not just because you're a box. If I use my girls as an example, so I'm in, I'm in the Marines, and two years ago, they, I think it was two years ago, three years ago, it was a male-dominated environment. You could only join if you were a man. And yes. now yes. women are allowed to join the, the, the Royal Marines are allowed to, it's the same test standards, same test entry point, everything yes. is the same. And I was like, initially, I suppose because of through indoctrination to start with, I was like conflicted because I'm like, well, I don't know if this is going to work. But then because of my girls, if my girls were old enough and they said they wanted to join the Marines, but they couldn't because they were female, I would be like, yeah, hold on a minute. That's not fair. Yeah. So I suppose it's coming down to the equality of opportunity rather than fi fixing yeah. an outcome. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and that's what I truly believe that, you know, if, if you're great at the job, but that can only happen if the world sees people as people without the culture, without religion, without, you know, um, being heterosexual, being lesbian, being gay. None of that should matter. Are you a human being? Great. What are you good at? Great. You suit this job. Wonderful. You got the job. I, I totally, I think, respect that, that you've earned your way in and you've proved your skill. Um, that's where you got the job. Why do you think people are like that, though? I think, I think, you, I think you can probably relate to this, which is a very old-fashioned military, the most successful military tactic in the entire world: divide and conquer. The more divided people are, the more control the government has, the more control everyone has. Because the more united people are, the less control everyone else has. Because if, if I'm a Christian and you, um, I don't know, a Buddhist, my people get, get to control me on my behavior, my mannerism and everything I do because I'm not allowed to mix with people like you because we have two different beliefs. Me and you wouldn't mix because of our beliefs. But if me and you did mix, we would realize there's so many similarities. I would be more welcoming and kind to start thinking about open my religion and my belief. And that comes into culture, that comes into way of life. Like many people that meet me and meet my family, they go, your family is so lovely and so nice. Yeah. And they're like, I would want my family to be more like yours. I'm like, oh, thank you. They're like, I'm going to take some of your culture now and embrace that to my culture. And to me, that's beautiful because you meet other cultures, you get to learn. But the problem is with most people, they keep themselves in these little boxes and that will keep them contained. That 
they were they were made to believe that it's safe. It's it's the right thing to do. So what would you say to someone that might be listening to this that might identify themselves as living in one of those boxes at the moment? Well, all I can say is this: when you meet somebody, you get to really experience it, not by somebody telling you. Like one of the things I always say to people, you know, too many people tell stories. It's a different thing to experience it. So when you experience something, you, you've met the person, you've ate with the person, you chill within the house, you've seen the, everything that they do, then you can make up a mind, just about that one person, but you can have an understanding of the culture. But you can't really understand a culture from standing back here and listening to 100 different people explaining you their point of view of that culture. And dance does that, right? That transcends culture. That's the, you know, that's the reason why you, you love it so much is because that's I, I suppose that's an in for you to it broke down barriers for you straight away major many 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 barriers and and for me with dances you got to get involved you got to see it you got to experience it before you get to question or say anything about it do you know what I mean you got to get down and, and do it and then you can say wow that was hard work because sometimes people see you dance go oh you make it look so easy it must be so easy for you I'm like flipping out, get on the dance floor with me for five minutes, do what I do. You'll be dying after five minutes, Jimmy, because it's such of a hard work. But that's what it's all about. It's about getting involved, experiencing the culture and the way of life. I love jiu-jitsu. I love jiu-jitsu. And I, I, when I train, and I, when you're on the mat and you're training, it does not matter. The only thing that matters is you're trying to stop someone else basically choke you. You know, it's like nothing yeah. else matters. It doesn't matter where they're from who they like their, 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 their financial backgrounds, their age or anything like that. It's about jujitsu. And for me, that transcends those, that cultural divide if it's there. And I suppose it's finding if you, if you are in that box, it's finding something that, because we want, I want to, pro, I want to promote this. I want people to be able to, you know, yeah. I, wanna, I, I hope that if one person from listening to this is inspired to try, then that's a, that's a win, right? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So the next steps for them is to, is, is I, I would suggest, is to try and try and find something that is inclusive, like a sport or dance or, or, or jiu-jitsu or something that people go to and they go to yeah. it because of that, not because of a cultural reason why they go to it. Yes, yes, yeah, definitely. So, some of that just embraces all. Um, some of that gives you the opportunity to meet so many different people from so many different backgrounds. And and there, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are. It's just that environment. And that's one thing I love hip-hop culture for. It's like we do the Saturday community sessions we used to do. You know, I used to get around two to 300 people turning up to my sessions. But people from all walks of life. And the beautiful thing about it, everyone's smiling. Everyone's having a great time. Everyone's looking after everyone. Everyone's being kind to everyone because they were part of hip hop then. They were all part of this bigger family, which is that human race. We're all together, we're one. You know what I mean? I, I have to ask you this before we move on to, um, to what you're up to now, because I'm, I'm really excited to talk about that as well. But what, is your, what was your, your opinion on what happened last year and the, the swathe of global support, shall we say, for cultural equality? What's your viewpoint on it? The thing for me is I was really affected by it because of so many people I worked with, so many people I built relationships with, went out on social media and wrote some horrible things. And I was like, so I, at your place, 
I partied with you. I, I went to these awards and won, won awards with you. And now you dare to say things like this about me and other people that were there? So it was, we're talking racist comments. Yes. And these are people yes. that your friends? Yeah. Yeah, people, business friends, people that I work with, people that I relate with, people that, you know, we mix with in our society. Um, and they made really horrible comments. So then me and my wife had to go and um, record ourselves to do a speech because I wanted those people to really think because I just think they didn't think at that moment in time. They didn't have time to process. They just got hyped in the moment with everything else that was happening and got involved in the negativity and didn't actually think because I know if they thought they hurt me, they wouldn't have said what they said. Because I think, I mean, that's a really interesting concept. Whilst the intent was to do good, it arguably then yeah. maybe caused division or further division in some areas because that's not necessarily something yeah. that we would have seen. And what you've just said there, it's a really, really sad thing. I don't think that the intent of that movement was to, was to cause that, but that was obviously a consequence yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, well, part of the BLM was that it got hijacked by the um, American kind of government and everything else. You know what I mean? Everyone just wanted to gain something from it. The, 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 the whole three words, you know, Black Lives Matter, they are beautiful. But the problem is it got hijacked by, by the media and everybody else to gain whatever they wanted. But the fact is a fact. Those lives do matter. And people do got to do something about it and recognise it, that they haven't mattered. Doesn't mean anybody else's lives don't matter. What it means is please stop and just recognize that my life hasn't mattered for a very, very long time. It didn't matter if they killed me or it didn't matter if I lived. And that was the problem. So we want just people just to recognize that it's important that all people live a good life or try to live the best life they to can. To me, that sounds, that sounds right. because, But I think it probably got misunderstood as well because you had a lot of people countering saying well all lives matter why is it just black lives matter and i think the way that yeah. you've just described it there is what you've just said there means that all lives do matter but so do so do black lives as well but that wasn't how yeah. it was necessarily viewed and probably wasn't the intent either to say we're more important or equalism it's not about that no. that was it was it was essentially no, raising the profile. Was, yeah yeah, all it was in that moment in time just said stop and just recognize, look me in the eyes and then tell me that my life matters as much as yours does. I should be given as much as opportunity as you do. I should be given the, the opportunity to live without being worried. Do you know what I mean? Like, like when I do my quality and diversity stuff, um, there's, there's, there's this one thing I say to people, what, what are you worried of for on a daily basis? Do, do you worry about stuff? People like about my job, my family, you know, if they're healthy, if um, I can afford my rent. Do you know what I mean? Just little things like that people worry about on a daily basis. I said, my worry is I might go to the local shop. A couple of guys might be there. They don't like the way I look. They come out, follow me, decide to beat me up. I die that day and my children grow up with the father. And is that, is that something that still crosses your mind now, fleet, fleet, even if it's for a small amount of time? It's, put it this way, it's what kept me safe. And that, I don't think, ever will go away. It's still like when I enter space, I'm looking, I know where the exit is, I know where the entrance is, I know how many security guards there are in the building, I know what type of people are where, where do I stand, where am I the safest to be placed in? Is that because of the environment you live in, or is that because, of, or partly because of that, or your a learned behaviour from growing up that's still there now because it's, in, it's, a, it's conditioned in you? Like, 
when you look at it, if you're looking at that from a third person, if you can. That is learned behavior because of the environment I was in. Because to survive, you had to be aware. You had to watch your back. You had to knew where to escape if anything did pop off. You had to watch who enters the space. What vibe did they bring in? I'm, and this is an assumption now, but I'm assuming that because of that thought process, it arguably is one of the reasons why you are where you are today as well, the survivability. Yeah. So do you want to explain a little bit about some of the projects and where you are at the moment? In, in fact, yeah. stop, stop, stop. Let's not go now. <laughs> Let's go back to a couple of years ago. So there's a, there's a little three letters on the end of your name I saw. So talk, yes, so, so talk, talk to me about this. So I love my community and I love what I do. Um, and then on a Sunday, I had this a letter. So me and my wife and the kids, always every Sunday, it's movie day. Blankets, snacks, cup of tea. So wife said, I go downstairs, make a cup of tea. She picked up all the letters, went downstairs, um, and I hear her jumping around screaming. I'm like, yes, sir. I'm so excited because I play the postal lottery. So I'm thinking, I won. I'm in. I'm in. Joey, you know I'm I mean? making paper. She comes upstairs. I'm thinking, all right, how many zeros? Three, four, five, six. What is it, Joey? Really excited. Um, and then she reads this letter out. And I'm gobsmacked because I don't know what it means. So I'm like, so I'm looking at her thinking, okay, and, and is how much money? <laughs> I said, no, 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 it's not that. I said, what is it then? I don't understand it. I said, no, no, listen to it carefully. He said, from Her Majesty, um, the Queen, uh, we would like to, um, you were nominated for an MBE and the Queen would like to give you an MBE. And I was like, what? The Queen? What, to me? I'm like, oh, my God, it's ridiculous. So then, because I didn't really understand the, the letters, what that means, the MBE, I went online, I Googled that, I YouTube that, and then we went nuts. Then I went nuts. Once I understood what it was, I went nuts. I um, couldn't tell anyone, but only uh, could tell my family. So I told all my kids, they went nuts, went to my mother-in-law, had a big kind of gone crazy moment. And it was um, breathtaking that so many amazing people took the time out to write their letters to send it in on my behalf and i'm so grateful to each and every person who's done it i don't know every person's name but everyone who has done it i am so grateful and so thankful for that so what have you bloody done like what, what was it that you did like that's amazing Ooh. oh it, it's amazing dude so we went to the palace um i met prince william um and and the loveliest thing was that when i met uh william was that he was real, and I loved, dude, I loved that guy because he was real. Well, what the nicest thing, and the most amazing thing was, he knew what I did, when, and what, and everything, because me and him actually had a full-on conversation, where usually I was expecting to him to go, hello, there's your award, um, goodbye. But it wasn't. It was a full-on conversation. Yo, Toby, how you doing? Da -da -da -da. And the coolest thing was, he pointed at my hair, he was about to touch it, but then I realised that he realised, oh, bloody hell, I can't touch his hair. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it was really cool because he kind of leant in and was about to, like, touch my hair, but then he thought, oh, yeah, I can't touch it. So then he put his That's all back. on video as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. That's on the BBC. It was brilliant. So that was So what was cool. that for? Um, why, 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 did, why were you awarded a state honour? I mean, that's amazing, mate. So, so I also would then be for my community contribution and for the work that I do for the Can community. Can you explain a little bit about that? So all my mentoring, mental health, physical health, 
helping people back to education, helping people back to living a normal life, helping kids, um, anti-bullying work, um, equality and diversity work. So all this stuff I do together kind of got put together into me being awarded an MBA. Wow. And how long have you been doing that work for then? Oh, I've been doing it now for um, over like 16 years. That's amazing. That really is amazing and, 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 and well-deserved as well. Like, and, and make no mistake, that doesn't just represent the hard work you've put in, but also that lovely wife of yours because... Oh, she's amazing, yeah. man. Yes, because when you're when you're off gallivanting, doing your deliveries and doing, all, you know, she's the one that's yeah. got <laughs> six kids going. When you when, when you back? When you back? Yeah, <laughs> no, but she's on it with me. That's the one, one of the most amazing things. Me and my wife work together. So I'm doing this right now. She's on the social media. Then she, babe, you got to do this, do this. And we work together so much, and we manage the kids together. So yeah, she's incredible. She's incredible. That, that's unbelievable. So what are you doing now? What what's what's next for for for, for Toby? What where where are we going? So right now, right now we're focusing on raising three and a half million for the building. building I want sorry, to building open, four. I want to open the first hip hop theater building in the world. And I want it to have a recording booth. I want it to have a computer suite. I want it to have a cafe, a rehearsal studio, a theater space. Uh, toilets, showers, change rooms, all that and everything we need. And I want it to be outstanding in a way of, I want it to work like, 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 like a multifunctional puzzle piece. It just does a million things. So I want it to work with, so I'm at the minute working with Babcock, so the local company to Plymouth and some of their um, engineers. We're working on an earpiece that if you're blind, you get an earpiece and it's like a GPS thing. It tells you where you are. You're just entering the cafe. On your left, there's tables. On your right is the entrance to the door. Please mind your corner while you're walking around the corner to the main space. So you as a blind performer, artist, person, can walk in and 80% walk on your own. That's incredible. And that's what I want this building to be. Do you know what I mean? Anyone that comes in, I want people to go, wow, this is they just thought of not everything, but nearly everything. Like my whole space is going to have ramps. So people in wheelchairs can access everything me and you can. There's no place... They can go where I mean you can go. I want it to be that accessible. One of my friends has got a business. Um, he's about to launch this year called Victim Mobility. It's a uh, wheelchair business. And his slogan is to enable, not disable. 100%, man. 100%. Like, I, I, I know this. And, and then I see many disabled people when we go out clubbing or we go to restaurants. They, they put them through a certain door and they sit by a certain door because that's the only place they can get into. And all of this sort of ostracizing. I'm thinking, no, go the extra mile and make them feel part of this. Do you know what I mean? So that's my idea with the business. And even like with someone, I'm working with an artist who's blind. And my job is that they can actually move around the, the whole place. And as well, that the whole thing speaks to you, tells you if you have any questions and stuff, to be really creative, do you know what I mean? So be really, really creative with the whole how we do it. Do you know what I mean? And as well, all our staff, I want them to be like Makatong and BSL trained so they can do sign language, they can communicate with you, um, to be really flexible. And I want the space to, from a theatre, change into a basketball court. From a basketball court, change to a football court. I want it to be so flexible that it can just do everything. I want like, I'm going to have cabinets full of books, like really clever, brilliant books, but I want the cabinet to spin around. So if I need to move it, a baby could just move it with the baby finger, just like that. And it will spin and it's smooth. And I want it to be really creative. And this whole space will be built 
And after that, what we're going to really work is focus really hard on because we opened a charity. Now we've got charity status is to say that we want to create a pot of money. And, and we're looking at a couple million each year to create. Because what we believe is investing in our next generation, but not only are young kids all ages of generation because they are still the, the next generation of people that are going to come in and change what we do and how we do it. And it's about sports. It's about dance. It's about um, cooking, filming, painting, work, gardening. Just I want people to be able to afford to go to a course, to be able to do something to change their life. So people can come and talk to us and apply for a scholarship but we can provide for the community. So I know when I was growing up, nothing like this existed. Everything I did, I had to do my own way. None of this whole hip hop business thing existed. So nobody knew what to do, how to do it, how to sell it, how to make it. I had to discover all of this on my own during this journey, which was crazy to do it, but we did. And now I want to share all this knowledge so other people can just carry on now and live a very good, happy life. That sounds incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I can see you're passionate, you're motivated to, to make this happen. Where are you at the moment on fundraising? Has it started yet? So, yeah. So at the minute, we just um, receive our status, our charity status, because lots of people want to give me money, but they have struggled with it because if they do, it comes out of their money and they get tax extra for it and everything else. If we become a charity, 20% of each person's tax money can come towards us. And we work with really big national and international companies that will donate their tax money towards us, towards this kind of pocket of money. Do you know what I mean, this, this, this kind of budget that we can really help the community and really reach out. Like, you know, we work with people that sometimes want to really want to change their life. And just by what want to be a nurse, say a lady that a lady worked with, and all she needed was a brand new laptop to be able to do her work. Do you know what I mean? That's the only thing was holding her back. So imagine like another kid I was working with, all he wanted to do was be a man in a van. If you bought in the van, the first year's insurance, after that, you never had to help that guy. The government would never have to help him. He would never go on benefits. He would have his own job, be fully employed, and live a happy life. That's incredible. And this is what this is about. This is about opportunity. And I truly believe in opportunity. And I truly believe in prevention. Do you know what I mean? Like with this money, we've gone around courses in schools and youth clubs and parks and everything to do lots of prevention. Because I truly believe in prevention. So the more we keep our kids busy, the more opportunities we give them, the more fun they have, the more educated they are, the more open-minded they are, the more they believe they can reach anything in the world. What motivates you to do this? One day, I, I, I remembered being poor and being hungry. And the life I live today, I realised how lucky and blessed I am. And in a way, how rich I live right now. Because me, to back home, like I'm, I'm a rich guy, do you know what I mean? To me, back home, living the way we lived, how poor we were, I know what it feels like to be poor. I know what it feels like to be hungry. And I know what it feels like to have talent, a talent that nobody else will see because of your circumstances. I want to make sure I give people the opportunity and the platform that people can see the talent, who these people and persons are, not just because of their, their clothes, the, the way they walk, the way they talk, or where they're from, or the history or the past. It's about them having an opportunity as a human being to achieve something in life. Mate, that, that sounds unbelievable. It really does. And you're, you're trying to give people something that seems to be fairly straightforward. But And I will be really interested and, and to see how this moves forward. What's the charity called? 
So the charity is called Street Factory Give Back. Okay. And it, it and it does what it says on the tin. We just give back. All the money that comes in is directly given straight back to the community and invested within the community. And you get support, guidance, help with your confidence, with your life skill, with your money managing. Everything you will need will be part of it to make sure you can succeed. Mate, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. I feel inspired myself to go and do something, and I don't know what, because your en your energy, <laughs> your passion, and your enthusiasm is unbelievable. And I can, even though we're talking over a computer screen, I that I can feel it. So I'm I don't know what I'd be like if we were in the same room together. Um, you know, it's, it's, but, it, but it is amazing, and and. I wish you all the best of luck in the future. And I, from what, what, where you've been and where you are now, it can only, there's only going to be one result to this. And you're, you're a driven individual, thoroughly deserving of your MBE. And that, that three and a half million, or whilst it sounds like a lot of money, it will be difficult. But I've got every faith in, in, in you from what we've discussed that you, will, that you will smash that target and more. And in five years' time, and your new storyboard, you'll be like, yeah, I can't believe where I am now. Done. Yes, man. Yes, man, definitely. But one thing I do want to mention, one thing I'm really working hard on this year is the book. I'm creating a book, and it's a self-help book. It's all the stuff I've done for 15 to 16 years now when I was working with people, all the tools and the practices I've put in. And now it's going to become a book because I'm working with so many people, and, and each time I tell people to do these things, it works. So now I want to create a book that people can just pick it up and change their lives. So I don't have to be there. You could be anywhere in the world and you can change your life. And I think that's what's really important is giving people an opportunity to change their lives, not just in my city. Because for the minute I am reaching my city because I'm here, I would love to reach so many more places. And this is the idea and the concept for this year to get the book done and to really promote that book for people to change their lives. When's that book going to be ready? Hopefully by the end of this year. I've been working really hard. You know, I've got a graphic designer, again, one of my own kids that I worked with for years. I've trained him. Um, he's my own graphic designer. He's done really dope, cool graphics. Um, so the book is going to be really cool. It's going to have a really dope feel to it, but it's going to be really challenging and inspirational for any person that picks it up. That's amazing, mate. That's absolutely amazing. Toby, again, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. And, and I'm sure people will absolutely find this interesting and be inspired by your story. Just want to say thank you to everybody. Peace and love to you all around the world. And don't forget, we're one, one human race all together. Thank you very much. Peace and love.